listening to Radio Free Philosophy. Welcome to Radio Free Philosophy. My name is Kevin Brown. And I'm Bob Uricu. And today we're going to begin our discussion about the God question. And this will probably occupy several broadcasts. In fact, it's too much to take on in one It's a show. big subject. So maybe uh, we can lay out some general ideas today, and then we'll look at some specific proofs in the next uh, couple shows. Sure, just about every philosopher has had to come to grips or grapple with the question of God, the idea of God, because there's a belief in God out there, and there has been before there was philosophy. So, many philosophers try to justify belief in God and explain that it's reasonable. Others say it's completely unreasonable. And I'm glad you mentioned that many philosophers try to explain belief in God because I think a lot of people have a sort of preconceived notion about philosophers as being all atheists. I mean, they're all just against God, which, of course, historically speaking, is, is false. There have been lots of philosophers who've been not only interested in, in the question of God's existence, but also believers themselves. Right. Well, let's look at the time when philosophy diverged from religion, because at one time they were together, and this is long before Christianity. I think we can safely say that it happened, well, in the 7th century BCE, with a man named Thales in Greek, in Greece, I'm sorry. And Thales was a a very adept mathematician, and he was skeptical about, skeptical about people's belief in God. So on August 16th of, I believe, 585 BCE, he calculated mathematically that there would be a total eclipse of the sun. Now, up to this point, people believed that an eclipse of the sun was caused by supernatural agencies, namely gods or God or something. And Thales now could predict it. Before Thales, things just happened, and events like eclipses were considered to be done at the whims of the gods. Now, people laughed at Thales, but on August 16th, at 6.15 a.m., it happened. And they didn't laugh after that. So Thales demonstrated that we could know something about our universe by ourselves, using our own reason, our own, our own calculating skills. We didn't need the gods, and we didn't need people to tell us what the gods said. Now, that's the point where philosophy and religion separated. Many philosophers have tried to bring those two back together again over the years. Others have said the separation is good for humankind. So, But, uh, but either way, it's, it's hard to uh, overestimate the importance of what Thales did because he really uh, inaugurated what would many centuries later become the scientific method, mm -hmm. approaching questions from a naturalistic standpoint. And uh, at the time, that was very radical indeed because a lot of the explanations for how the world worked were very uh, mythological mm -hmm. or religion-based. Well, why does it rain? Well, there's a rain god. Uh, why does the sun sometimes just get blocked out? A day turns to night. Well, that's some... God mm -hmm. and the work of uh, some uh, 
supernatural process. Sure, there were storm gods, there were fertility gods and goddesses, and the whole world revolved around people's belief in them. But the philosophers, the Greek philosophers especially, tended to distance themselves from the gods and the belief in gods. Um, Pythagoras, for example, would, would uh, say that the essence of the universe is number. Socrates would make fun of the gods. Yeah. In fact, he was yeah. accused of, of, of pulling the, the, the young people of his day away from worship of the gods and more to reliance upon reason. Yeah, that's what ended up uh, getting him put on trial. Yes. <coughs> he was uh, uh, corrupting the youth. Mm -hmm. And, of course, at the time, what was considered corrupting the youth was simply getting them to ask questions. Like, well, how can you be so certain that there is such a God and that the God is controlling your life in this way? And that's a question that's still relevant today. Uh, you know, people will say, but I just know there's a God. I mean, how can you not believe in God? So what does the word know mean? Now, we've examined in these broadcasts the field of epistemology, of knowledge. We've seen how many philosophers say there's very little we really know for sure. So what does knowledge mean? But I don't know. It seems to me as a, as a basic that to say I know something means that I have information about the world. And that some, there's some way to verify that information. If I say I know there's going to be a Super Bowl game this weekend, I can verify that. Yeah, uh, one of the most succinct definitions in epistemology is knowledge is justified true belief. Uh, and that kind of very well encapsulates the idea uh, of, that you're talking about because you certainly have a belief that there's going to be a Super Bowl game, but it doesn't count as knowledge unless there's some verification. That is, unless it's justified. And of course, it also helps that it's true. In that respect, it's, it would really be strange for me to say, I know the capital of Kentucky is Lexington. Mm -hmm. I may have a strong belief, but the fact of the matter is it's untrue. That's right. And this is interesting when it's related to the question of God, because for it to be knowledge, it doesn't really matter how strong your belief is. The question is, is your belief justified? And you've got to provide something beyond a strong inner feeling to make the claim that you have justified true belief. And we call that verifiability or falsifiability. We can know things because we can verify them or falsify them. That's knowledge in philosophy. Now, what happens when someone says, I know God, or I know there's a God, I know the gods did this. I know this god caused the storm. Now we're faced with a problem. Can we verify that? Or can we falsify that statement about knowledge? When it comes to God, or gods, or the supernatural in general, or anything paranormal, the issue of verifiability and falsifiability becomes very, very challenging, shall we say. Yeah, not necessarily impossible, but certainly very challenging. Um, a lot of scientists uh, over the uh, centuries have, have actually taken an interest in the question of God's existence. And many of them do say, well, the hypothesis could be verifiable. It's just that the evidence we have so far seems to count against the hypothesis that there's a God. That, of course, disturbs a great many people, including some philosophers uh, over time who had to deal with this question of can you provide 
good evidence that really counts as verification of uh, the so-called God hypothesis, that is the idea that God exists, and not some other hypothesis. You can provide evidence, for instance, many people will say, well just look around you, I mean the, the, the sun comes up when it's supposed to, the trees shed their leaves when they're supposed to, birds fly south when they're supposed to, that's got to be a good example of um, existence of God, but it might be evidence that can verify several different hypotheses, but not any one hypothesis. Sure. Hypothesis. The mystery of the universe has always evoked some some answers to the question, where did this all come from? How is it so perfect? How does sun, the sunrise come every day? Uh, how, how come the rains come at a certain season every year? Um, how do we answer these questions? Well, when you don't have scientific evidence, the tendency is to say, must be caused, it must be the result of some supernatural agency. We'll give it a name, we'll call it this God or that God, or we'll give it just the name God. But as science advances, it seems that attributions of these wonderful things to God seem to recede. We were pretty sure, in fact, it's just about verifiable, that rainstorms don't happen because God opens a trap door in the heavens. We know that's the way that water circulates around the earth through the water cycle. Yeah, and that can be empirically verifiable and not only uh, verified in one particular way but lots of converging evidence uh, tells us that that's how it really works. We know the earthquake in San Francisco in 1907 didn't happen because the people were living sinful lives and and some god decided to destroy San Francisco. We're pretty sure it happened because there was a major shift in the plates and the San Andreas Fault is uh, evidence that those plates exist. But something you mentioned earlier illustrates a, a very common uh, uh, logicians would say fallacy in thinking about God's existence. That is the idea that uh, well Science can't yet explain how this or that works, so it must be some supernatural cause, as if those are the only two options. Uh, I mean, it might be the case that science can't explain it yet. That doesn't mean that the only other viable option is something supernatural. The key word there is yet, because as science advances, the need for faith seems to diminish. Uh, the United States and other countries didn't send out satellites into space in perfect orbit because of a belief in God or what's out there in heaven or even a belief in heaven at all it was based on science so look at us there's wonder all around us we the earth is spinning at a thousand miles an hour the earth orbits around the sun at 66,000 miles an hour we know we can measure the advance, the expansion of the universe at 34,000 miles an hour. Um, this is all available to us. And we can trace the history of the universe back to a, a few milliseconds before a, a vast explosion took place from a pinprick of light. We call it the Big Bang. Um, it's not just a theory. It, it's, it seems to explain the facts best of all. So we don't need to look for a creator anymore.
to explain how this world got here or who put its laws in place. We're not even sure there are laws. As we do research into subatomic physics, we find, again, the uncertainty principle. Right. That the subatomic particles don't seem to follow laws. They seem to do whatever they want. And this is uh, all very deeply disturbing to many people because uh, uh, it seems to go against uh, the notion that life could have value or meaning because without uh, God to give life value, meaning, purpose, uh, what's the whole point of it all? If it's just uh, random chance that brought us here and random chance that keeps us here. Sure, and, and, and that gave rise to this the explanation called teleology, that there is an end and a purpose, and that end and purpose had to be put there by some higher being than what we see around us. And that, that gravitates people toward belief in God. But is that, is that the way to, to think about it? Could, could we think about um, purpose, for example, evolution? Could it have a purpose unto its own to just perfect the species and make the, the species more survivable? Is there a need to explain purpose with God or gods or a god of some sort? And the answer by more and more people today is no. And I, I guess that's why evolution is so threatening to a lot of people. It, it seems to take the underpinnings out from belief in God. And one of the things we might want to examine over the next few broadcasts is, is that really the case? Because if it turns out that there really is no God, but God is necessary for these notions of value or meaning or purpose, then we've got a serious problem. On the other hand, if it turns out, as you say, that it's quite possible to generate these notions of value, meaning, and purpose without appealing to a supernatural agent, then it might not be as damaging if we discover that there is no uh, supernatural agent. And maybe we should be clear that all questions of meaning and purpose um, are not going to be found in science. Science observes what's there. And philosophy is well suited to uncover or speculate about questions of meaning and purpose. And so is religion. And they both do just that. So now maybe we should examine the methodologies of both science, or both philosophy and religion. Some thoughts from John Cleese. The 21st century may belong far more to philosophy than to psychology or even traditional religion. What a strange thought. Philosophy is not a religion, it's not psychology, it replaces neither. It's born out of wonder at the world, and it works against confusion. Now, of course, there's much to wonder about and a lot of confusion. So maybe that is why the 21st century may become very philosophical. A message from the Philosophers of America, celebrating 100 years of thought. Okay, so we're back from the break, and uh, we want to talk about uh, the difference between... Uh, the method of thinking through these questions that uh, religion and philosophy uh, illustrate. I mean, they're both concerned, as you say, with these sort of ultimate questions of meaning, purpose, and value, but they take them on quite differently, don't they? Yes. 
Is there a difference between knowledge and belief? Well, we've already touched upon a possible answer to that. That knowledge is a statement made about our world that we know something about our world, which can be verified or denied. And belief is something we take on someone else's authority, that we don't experience it directly. But the problem is, most of our knowledge comes from authority. I mean, when we read a textbook for a course, we're taking on the authority of the authors of the textbook that there's truth being printed in these pages. Um, most of our knowledge comes from authority. So let's look at the way we receive, say, three different kinds of uh, bits of knowledge. First of all, you hear in the news the anchorman saying in the 630 news that um, there's a huge forest fire in Colorado that 100,000 acres have been burned and the fire is still uncontained. And massive resources are being rushed to take care of this fire, to keep it from engulfing many more thousands of acres. Now, should we believe that? Well, maybe we shouldn't believe anything we're told, uh, but can we verify it? Are there other sources? Um, would an anchorman, anchor person on national news be telling us this if there weren't some foundation for it? Uh, is it a hoax? Well, the likelihood of that happening is, is low. So, admittedly, a lot of our news is filtered and pre-digested and maybe even censored. But a fire in Colorado, yeah, maybe we could tentatively agree to that. Now, Another statement that would come our way, we say, you know, in a, a biology textbook. Um, we read in the textbook that DNA is the molecular basis for sexual reproduction. And each one of us resembles our parents because we inherit a complement of their DNA. Each of us has arms and legs because our DNA coded for the proteins that produce them during our early development. Should we believe that? Because we read it, is that something we know? Yeah, this one's harder to verify, certainly. I mean, it's harder for me to go out and check it uh, for myself. Right. But what about the reliability of that authority? Now, first of all, it wouldn't be in a textbook unless the textbook had been vetted by biological peers or peers of biologists. Um, it's very hard to print anything about science today um, without it being vetted. Yeah, and peer review and quite uh, extensive. Exactly, vetting. a publisher is not going to make the expensive mistake of publishing a very expensive textbook, and then having it be derided by by peers. Um, that's why you have editorial boards. So, generally, textbook publishing companies are very conservative about what they put in. Their their, their views may be slanted somehow, but nevertheless. Um, a, a panel of experts has probably agreed to the publication of these words. So, while I can't be absolutely certain that what is being said here is true, I, I can have reasonable confidence that it is. Alright, now let's look at the third statement. The Pope says that Jesus was born of a virgin and resurrected bodily after death. The Pope insists that he is the Son of God who created the universe in six days. 
If you believe this, you'll go to heaven after death. If you don't, you'll go to hell, where you will suffer for all eternity. Now, that's an authoritative statement. Now, if I'm a Catholic, I guess I'd have to believe that. But is, is that knowledge in the same way that the other two statements are knowledge? Now, one way you can respond to that, which I can imagine some people doing, is saying, well, look, I can say the same thing about that statement that you just said about the DNA textbook example. That is, I mean, look at all the people who review, uh, let's just take the example of uh, the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there have been so many people reviewing it for so many years, and nobody has come along and changed it or excised anything after translation after translation after translation and so couldn't you say that it has the same reliability uh, and the Pope is simply just uh, doing no more than quoting from a book just as uh, a biologist today could quote from a book mm -hmm. and so if the book is reliable uh, then the the belief in it must also be reliable okay good observation then the book in question would be the Bible, I guess, right? Right. So, what is the Pope an expert on the Bible? Well, we have to say, mm, probably not. Um, who are experts? Well, I guess they're, they're biblical scholars. So we go to them. Do they corroborate what the Pope is saying? And there's been a lot of scriptural scholarship around for, for 200 years. And for the, at least for the past 150 years, and certainly for the past 50 years, that scholarship is going in a direction that's saying, this is not literally true and should be interpreted another way. And that would be the consensus of, of scholars today. So here we are. We're, we're not exactly undermining them, what the Pope's authority is, but we're saying that he's not an expert, and the experts are saying something different than he is. But you, you, you raised an interesting point earlier that uh, uh, might cause us to put a different take on this, which is uh, we, we get all of our knowledge, or at least most of it, from others, from experts. And the trouble is, of course, we have to figure out which experts are reliable and which aren't. All right. But shouldn't I just say, well, look, the only expert I need is the one who spoke the words originally, and that is Jesus Christ. Okay, good. So, presumably, the authority of Jesus would be the same authority as God if Jesus purported to speak in the name of God. And if the people copied down Jesus' words, said, this is the word of God. All right. Now, how do we verify that? So now we have, it seems to me, we have two knowledge sources. We have things we believe because they're reasonable to believe. And we have things we believe because we hold a great stock in the authority of the person speaking. In this case, a person who speaks from another world with the authority of God. Now, these are two different sources of knowledge. The person who speaks from the authority of God says things that cannot be verified and cannot be falsified. So, if a Bible author says that Jesus was born through a virgin birth. That goes against everything I know from reason and from science. 
So now, if I'm going to believe it, I'm going to believe it because I want to believe it. And I'm going to believe it on the authority of the person speaking. I'm going to say that authority is called revelation. It's a revelation from God. So see, now I have two sources. I've got reason and I've got revelation. In philosophy, the tendency is to follow the path of reason. In theology or religious studies, the tendency is to follow the path of revelation. Now, the two are not completely incompatible because many great philosophers were believers who believed in the, the authority of revelation, but also used reason to make it more palatable and make it more understandable and acceptable to a rational person. But there are many philosophers who say the two are incompatible. The very source, the authority, the source of the authority is so different. In one, the source is human reason alone. In the other, it's revelation alone. And because revelation can't be falsified or verified, it must be taken on blind faith. And the philosophers, many philosophers would say, especially today, that's where we part company. And even the uh, philosophers who were keen to advocate uh, a proof of the existence of God, as you point out, used reason, uh, I suspect at least in part because they recognized that everybody has access to reason. Not everybody has access to the revelation. You yes. can't depend on getting the revelation. It doesn't, it's, it's not a matter of observing something, reading something, or being in the right place at the right time. That is a most penetrating observation. Because if there's one thing we have in common, every human being, it's reason. What we don't have in common is revelation. Even if a, if a billion people believe in the same authority, the same Bible or scripture, that doesn't mean the other billions of people share that. In fact, they might have a completely different source of revelation. We see a big conflict in the world today between the, the Christian world and the Muslim world. Uh, about a third of the world are Christians holding for the authority of the Bible. But a sixth of the world, a billion people, are Muslims, and they hold in the absolute authority of the Quran. Now, both are reasonable people, but they don't share the same source of revelation. They share reason together. And it gets worse than that because it's largely an accident of birth which one you happen to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I happen to have been born in the United States, which means other things being equal, I'm more likely to have been brought up in a Christian background. Mm -hmm. If I'd been born in uh, Istanbul, it was it mm -hmm. would be extremely likely for me to be a, a, a Muslim. Yes. Or uh, if I was born in Baghdad, or if I was born in New Delhi, it might be very likely that I was a Hindu. And the, and the Hindu scriptures, the Upanishads, the, the Vedas, that would be your authority. Now, we might want to end with a question that I'm sure is on everybody's mind, given all this talk about um, uh, reason and revelation. But what, what's the harm in believing? I mean, after all, uh, it might be right, and you might be wrong. The scientists might be wrong. So shouldn't we hedge our bets and say, well, it would be better to believe? I mean, after all, as you point out when you first gave the example, uh, if you believe in this, you, you're, you'll be rewarded with eternal life. Well, assuming it's true, but if it happens to be true and you don't believe in it, 
then you've got some bad times coming. And we're going to talk shortly about a philosopher who solved that. But before we do, maybe we should just say that there are many people today that say, what's the harm? There's a lot of harm. That most of the harm in the history of the human race has been caused by religion. So that's one way. But no. Yeah, and certainly uh, you could say, well, what's the harm in believing uh, that Christ is uh, the resurrected Savior of the world? Well, uh, but by that logic, I could say, well, what's the harm in believing that Allah is the real divine being that I should be listening to? Um, I mean, in other words, if you can make that argument about one God, you can make it about all the gods. Mm-hmm. So I might just as well say, well, what's the harm in uh, killing infidels? Because that's what God is telling me to do. And if I'm wrong about that, uh, I might end up in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And what's the harm in in bringing all kinds of children to be baptized, to save their souls, whether they know it or not, or they want it or not, if you feel you're doing the right thing? Can any harm come of that? It's interesting that you raise that question, because uh, there's been a recent book published by an evolutionary biologist named Richard Dawkins, and we might have occasion to talk about this book in a later broadcast. It's called The God Delusion. And he says the harm to that is very simply child abuse. Uh, which might be a strong statement, but he says there's no such thing as a Christian child. There's no such thing as a Muslim child. There are children of Christian parents. Mm -hmm. There are children of Muslim parents and so on. I mean, children at that age aren't yet capable of making the decisions about what their religious beliefs are any more than they're capable of deciding whether they're uh, supply-side economists or or, uh, monetarists. There are some who are outraged at the Mormon practice of baptizing the dead. Uh, I know several people have been really upset that a family member converted to the Mormon Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and then wanted to baptize all their relatives, all their dead relatives, so that they could enjoy happiness with them in the, in the world to come. But it just seems so strange to think of baptizing dead people against their will. Well, is it the same as baptizing a child? before the child's ready to accept. And, and many Christian churches do, th- do that. Other Christian churches, of course, await for adulthood. Sure, this for, is a big... a conscious uh, decision. Yeah, a big, big issue in, in some denominations. Okay, so it uh, seems like we've laid an interesting foundation for further discussions. We're going to have to look at some proofs of God's existence in a little more detail, and then some criticisms of those, perhaps in the next episode. 